Welcome back, and today we are going to continue our episode on the evolution of automated lighting. And so without further ado, here we go. Henry, uh, in your mind, you know, oldest moving lights you saw, when did the industry start? What are the major steps along the way that we took? The oldest moving light I've ever seen, and it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, for those of you who don't know a gentleman by the name of Bob C., uh, who's passed away, God rest his soul. But um, he was an industry icon for many, many, many years. And uh, he's based out of Long Island City, New York, or his company still is, still up and running. But uh, Bob was a unique individual in that he collected and never threw anything out. So anybody that has set foot in his shops, it was just this massive historical museum of old lighting. And I remember going up a number of years ago, this is probably 15 years ago, into his shop and walking around. And I look down at a pile of mirrors that have a bunch of airlines hanging out of them. And I said, hey, you know, what are those things? I've never seen those things before. And he goes, you know, he goes, those are the oldest moving lights that I've ever seen. And um, I kept them for my museum, but these were used at the, uh, the Rockettes Theater in uh, Manhattan. And fundamentally they were all air driven and they were used and hung in front of, you know, beam projectors, uh, early model ellipsoidals, because even ellipsoidal lights as you know them uh, today were <laughs> totally different back then. And they were able to uh, they were able to be used uh, via air to move beams around, and they were quite noisy. They didn't last very long, but it was kind of interesting to see a moving mirror that was air driven. So that was probably the single oldest light that uh, that I had ever seen. Now I have to I have to admit I've never even heard of it. Yeah, <laughs> you know that was that was one that definitely passed me by. I'd never heard of the air driven one. Do you have any idea who made it or what the name was? No, I mean, there was a lot of out-of-the-box thinking back in those days. You know, you have to remember, right, in in the 60s and in the 70s when this stuff was made, you know, they were still designing cars on paper. And there were just a lot of nutty industry guys. The uh, the lobster claw, a stroboscopic effect that was hung in uh, follow spots came out then. It was just basically a pie wedge uh, that was spun in front of an ellipsoidal that created a stroboscopic effect. That's where that type of stuff came from. A lot of... You know, the industry icons, as you know them, really had thought outside of the box and uh, and made effects like this. I don't know, though. I mean, we had a bunch of, you know, machinists up in New York. It was an industrial base. Altman is up there. You know, you can still walk through their uh, machining facilities and see uh, all the stuff that turned out all those great lights over the years. So it was kind of interesting, you know. Uh, you know, and then after Bob C., probably the, you know, the oldest moving light that I was actually taught how to build uh, was by a gentleman by the name of Paul Twist. And then once again, God rest his soul. But he showed me how to hang a mirror, a little, you know, three inch by four inch mirror suspended on two rubber bands in front of a bass speaker. And what you did is you shined a par 36 light on it, hanging somewhere out in front of the venue. And then as the bass played, the beam moved around and you fogged up the, uh, the room. And those were the earliest, earliest, I guess they were, that was a dumb light, but it was quite popular in England um, in the 70s. And that, you know, that was kind of neat. And, you know, more and more as people recognize the ability of a beam of light to move or to reposition a beam of light, either while it was illuminated or while it wasn't illuminated, you started to see some boutique manufacturers come out. And, you know, one of the 
more interesting ones that gained notoriety was uh, Stefan Graf from uh, Fantasy Lighting built an automated light called the Cyclops. And you would identify this thing as uh, it was servo motor driven, model airplanes, uh, servo motors in it. But you would identify this as a giant cyber light of the time. And I can't remember what uh, what shows he used it on. I want to say it was with the band Chicago, but I'm not 100 percent sure. But uh, these things were stage mounted. Some of them were hung, but they just were these big follow spot type beam effects that moved on a mirror. Uh, and again, it looked like a cyber light. So, you know, you could put patterns and things in it and they were all quite the rage. Um, you know, when you when you talk about that evolution into the, you know, the early 80s is when you really started to see manufacturers make their first legitimate uh, efforts at mass producing moving lights. So again, you had, you know, a bunch of the mad scientists doing this. But, you know, I think really when you look at it, uh, Clay Packy and Verilite, just about at the same time, uh, kind of were the first manufacturers into the into the business. So, you know, in the early 80s, Clay Packy themselves was a disco light company. They made all kinds of spinning effects for nightclubs in the, the late 70s and the 80s. And they produced a product called a Silver Scan. Uh, many of you know the Golden Scan, and it was the predecessor to the uh, the Silver Scan was the predecessor to the Golden Scan. Again, it was uh, you would identify it as what a Cyberlight or what a Golden Scan would look like, except that it was driven by uh, servo motors. And what happens with servo motors, and I won't geek out too bad here, is that they are positionally inaccurate. <clears throat> so what happens with those things is that you'll pan the mirror one direction, then you go to put it back on its spot. You know, you want to spotlight the singer in the, in the center of the stage and all of a sudden that spot of light is off by three feet. So they're not a reliable, repeatable format. Clay Packy realized that early on and made a decision to stop the production of the Silver Scan after a very short production run and move on to uh, the magnetic stepper motor, which is still used in the automated lights today. So it was magnetically driven, very repeatable uh, motions. Uh, in those lights, uh, you know, much more reliable, much more reliable. Absolutely. And uh, so you saw the advent of the golden scan. And then about at the same time, uh, we saw, you know, Genesis uh, invest in a small startup company out of Texas called Shoco. And Marcel, I'll let you take it from there. But they were the first yoke driven light with the VL0 and the VL1. So Marcel, yeah, you want to talk it, a little bit it, about it? It's a really great story. So um, I think it was 1980 when uh, when Shoko really was working on developing something that would end up being called, uh, initially anyways, the VL0, finally becoming the VL1. But they were working on the development. They did a test on it or multiple tests on it. Uh, I heard one was at a barbecue or something. And that was when they decided not only should it change color, but it should move. So they added a couple motors to it for pan and tilt. And so by the end of December, or by the end of 1980, uh, or early 1981, I'm not sure what the exact date was of, of the chance uh, uh, demonstration that they did for Genesis, but they went over to England. Genesis, I think, was in rehearsals for uh, Abacab tour which would happen later in the year and uh they showed them this light and they were in a in a 
some sort of a an estate or a farm or something and and they aimed the light at a building and changed some colors and then all of a sudden it moved and they really only had a few cues that they had programmed on the light for the demo but when it moved the first reaction came from one of the members of the band Mike Rutherford who said you know I expected the thing to change color but holy shit it moved and so that really instantly got Genesis very excited. They invested in uh, final development of the product. They became a partner in, in the product. And Shoko went on to create Verilite, the VL100 system, and the, the VL1 light fixture along with a, a control console making up the, the system. Um, it was actually Genesis manager, Tony Smith, who named Verilite, who, who called it Verilite. And so the Genesis tour, that tour, the Abacab tour, went on to use 50 of the VL1s on the tour beginning in, in 81 at some point. Um, the product was patented in 1983, which was very significant and important because it created really a lull in development for moving head technology in lights. So most manufacturers, Martin, High End being the biggest ones at the time, grabbed the moving mirror technology and ran with that and said we can use disco lights with moving mirrors on them and we can go out and compete with the Verilites of the world. And um, so, you know, early on, and, and Henry, you may know more about it than I do, but I know Chaz was the first person who uh, used an IntelliBeam on a major tour, and I believe it was Dire Straits. Yeah, so so Chaz Harrington, Zenith Lighting now, uh, came over, used a bunch of IntelliBeams on Dire Straits, and really, as they say, the rest is history, because all of a sudden, the IntelliBeam was the hottest thing on earth, and every rental company anywhere had IntelliBeams in stock and was using them on tours. And the reason was because what happened, similar to Betamax and VHS in video for any dinosaurs like us who can remember that, Betamax was obviously the better way to do it. Moving heads were obviously the better way to do it. But because they so tightly patented and they wouldn't allow any kind of royalty agreements or licensing agreements, uh, they just wanted to patent themselves into a corner with that technology, which they did. So it was Verilite against the world. And the world went with moving mirrors because that kept them out of patent fights until High End was the first major company to go out and say, screw you, we're going to come out with a light anyway. And I think Henry can tell us a little bit more about that one. But um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's uh, really the VL1 and Genesis was what kicked this whole thing off. Um, myself, I got into the moving light business when the mirror thing was happening. And it was even before the IntelliBeam. So I started with Martin uh, as a reseller in about 88, I think. And um, I was selling a product called a RoboScan, and at the time, I think there was the RoboScan 804 and 805, which had a little uh, halogen lamp in it. I'm sorry, 804, 804, and 1004. And then there was the 1005 and 805, which had a discharge lamp in it. And then the 1016, which had 16 gobos instead of four and uh, had a bigger discharge lamp in it. So... Um, these were very archaic products, tiny little mirror, tiny little beam coming out, but it was the first, uh, really, Martin was the first accessible moving light to a smaller nightclub with, without the big Comar 
budgets or clay packy budgets that other uh, clubs had. So the big mega clubs would have Comar fixtures or, or clay packy fixtures. The smaller or medium-sized clubs were going, hey, we want this wiggle light technology too. How can we get it? So Peter Johansson, the founder of Martin, did a really smart thing, and he created lights that were accessible to the masses. So up in Canada, I was selling these things like crazy to anything from DJ companies to nightclubs to uh, even some churches and things. So um, really, it was it was a, a major moment in the moving light business when when Martin kind of brought the entry uh, the entry fee down to get into moving lights. It's kind of interesting. Uh, Kind of interesting when you when you talk about lights, uh, you know, and you reminiscing about them, you're talking about tiny beams and tiny light bulbs. It's amazing how much the output of the light has also changed over its development. So, you know, VL1s, for those of you uh, out there that probably have ever used a techno beam or a, a, a 250 watt based uh, discharge based fixture, which, you know, they were produced in the 2000s. So some of you out there are familiar with them. Uh, those type of lights had more than double the output of the VL1 on the original uh, Genesis shows. And certainly, you know, some of the products that you're talking about, Marcel, the, you know, 804s, 805s, 1004s, those RoboScans, by today's standards, even with the lowest output LED stuff, um, man, they just were super low output. But nobody really cared back then because you didn't, you know, you didn't have overall relatively higher output lights. So... It was kind of interesting. There was nothing to compare it to. Yeah, correct. You know. Yeah, and so you know the ten ten oh five and ten sixteen uh, being our big light at the time. Then all of a sudden the uh, the IntelliBeam I beam I was about to say, which was kind of the the name short it. name yeah. for it. But um, the IntelliBeam came out and really just stopped us in our tracks. And so we went back to the drawing board. We came up with. Uh, uh, our angle at Martin, when I say we, I was at Martin at the time. Uh, Henry, I don't think, was quite at high end yet, but it was almost there. And um, so we were coming out with smaller, more compact lights with uh, discharge lamps in them, though. So the next big one that we came out with was the, the 218, uh, which was, uh, I think it was a 250-watt MSD 250 or MSR 250 or whatever, uh, discharge lamp, but it was pretty bright for a small package. At the time, it was probably the most oomph for a small package. And I remember an ad that we did uh, with Peter Morse for, I believe it was Reba McIntyre, where he used them along the sides of the the uh, catwalk that she went out on. Um, and he used them in the rig as well. But he said, it's my, I forget what he called it, but it, it's my hot, compact killer or something along those lines and um, Peter loved them he used them all over the place just throw a few over there throw a few over there so that was kind of an advancement that we made but again the the IntelliBeam just crushed everything as sort of the main touring light until you know then high-end did it again with the Cyberlight and um, the Cyberlight I remember not coming out with the greatest start because I, I remember the LDI show when they were ready to launch it and I think they had one catch fire or something in the booth um and but I remember the booth being completely draped off closed nobody could see what was going on inside it it was really a well done launch from a standpoint of of the you know just the secrecy behind it all and this big cloak of silence 
And uh, it, again, just completely crushed the industry, took over the industry and, and won everything. So it became the touring light of choice for a, a lot of years. Yeah, absolutely. That was a great light. Um, high end did some really good stuff. And then, of course, you know, as you mentioned, Marcel, you know, the yoke lights, uh, they made a run at a yoke light. And it's I was that's actually when I started with high end uh, was to do technical support for the studio color light itself. But interestingly enough, the. Um, the predecessor to the studio color was a thing called the techno color and it was very briefly launched as a teaser out of high end and all of the electronics for that it was a yokeless light so you actually physically had the clamp hanging out of the yoke and all the motors and all of the uh, uh electronics were all built into the yoke and certainly uh high end had to pull that back quickly because it was almost like a dead knockoff of a vl5 where everything was in the yoke so they go hey you know what this will probably get us a lawsuit, so we're going to go ahead. Let's and, make a let's make an effort to at least try and make it look somewhat different. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they moved yeah. the electronics up into what people in our industry call it's a top box now that you know has the ballast in it and the uh, the electronic circuitry in it that drives this, uh, the servo motors, and uh, they got sued anyway. So they got sued for the uh, the color mixing system, the studio color. Uh, groundbreaking light per se because as you mentioned marcel it was one of those uh it was one of the first purchasable is that a word um yoke yeah. mounted lights that you could actually put on a tour and i remember you know i think it was the first it besides verilite yeah absolutely yeah absolutely yeah. well they were the first ones with cojones big enough to actually challenge verilite on on their patents absolutely and uh and go after their core market I remember these things being purchased by literally the hundreds. You know, by that time I was at high end. I was uh, taking care of customers, training people on on that light uh, itself. Uh, obviously, maintaining the uh, quality control of that light. I had, uh, you know, that was one of my responsibilities. But that light, oh my God, I remember, you know, a couple hundred went out on Yanni. It was, you know, three hundred over here, two hundred over there. And then, of course, when you came on, Marcel, right? That's that's when you had the PRGs, they were buying how many hundreds of those things were they buying yeah. at the same time? And yeah. of course, uh, you know, that being said, Verilite got threatened really quickly uh, because it collapsed, effectively collapsed a lot of their rental business. The VL5 at the time, or I think it was the Series 300 uh, rental uh, contract that they would sign. V Verilite for the longest time never sold any product. It was only until the, the Verilite VL2000 that you could actually purchase a Verilite. Everything was in rental back then. And, um, you know, what happened with that is that severely damaged uh, Verilite's ability to, to rent VL5s and at that time VL4s, VL6s also because they were starting to build uh, some of the moving profile heads also. And that's where the, the lawsuit started on the color mixing system, you know, and in the end, it's kind of funny when I look back on the lawsuit, I was pretty heavily involved with that. But in the end, really, nobody, nobody won. Uh, millions of uh, dollars got spent on attorneys. I'm sure that bought a few BMWs for uh, the attorneys on both sides. And then, you know, there was a financial settlement and a licensing agreement of some type, and, and it kind of faded out. Uh, when the lawsuit was settled, but wow, it, you know, it certainly, certainly uh, caused a lot of financial damage to both companies. And then ultimately, uh, just after that settlement, then there was an injunction uh, 
that was placed against Martin product uh, for the yeah. For the same so pattern. that's uh, you know? I, I was going to jump in there and say that while you guys were were fighting it out with Verilite at Martin, we were developing a moving light very carefully, very quietly, uh, a moving headlight first, a wash light, then a then a hard edge profile, and uh, being the Mac six hundred, then the Mac five hundred. And um, when we were doing that, uh, we were just kind of watching the lawsuit, watching how everything went and waiting, you know, until it was the right time to launch something. So I think it was basically around the time that the lawsuit was settled. We launched the, the Mac 600 first, the wash light. And the first tour I put them out on, a couple of tours, one was Sammy Hagar, one was uh, No Doubt and um very successful again it was just an even more accessible studio color so while the world was renting studio colors we came out with something a little less money uh very similar in feature set and um with a martin brand on it that could be sold through our dealer and distribution network and it was very successful right out of the gate again selling hundreds and hundreds of them it just really changed uh, the look and feel of Martin completely as a company to now being a completely professional lighting manufacturer in the rock and roll or entertainment lighting business as well. So, you know, there's debates for years o over which was a better light, the Mac 600 or the Studio Color, and I don't really care. What I do know is that both of them sold a heck of a lot of lights. And uh, the fact is, to this day, at Gear Source, we're still selling used studio colors, used Mac 500s, used Mac 600s. And honestly, the funny thing is, for the first time, I think, ever, Martin made the next major development. And I was no longer with the company. Yep. Um, but High End was fumbling along with uh, this thing called the X-Spot. And uh, what was the other one? Studio Beam, which was kind of successful for a little while, but not really. And, um, you know, so high end was kind of fumbling along with me too stuff and high, uh, Martin came out with the Mac 2000 and similar to the, to the IntelliBeam and Cyberlight of days old, the Mac 2000 completely annihilated, uh, everything in the market. The Mac 2000 just became the light that you had to have in your rental inventory. So, yeah, Absolutely. I mean, the Mac 2000 really is, you know, when I look at the, the period of time between the Mac 500 and the 600 and the Mac 2000, the, uh, the change or the effect that it had on the overall production business was enormous. Automated lights at that point went very, very, very mainstream. And it allowed even the smallest companies that struggled to buy two or four lights, it allowed them to grow into massive, massive, massive companies. And this is really, I kind of, that's like a breakwater point um, for, for our industry itself. And obviously this has taken us to where we are today, but you've seen how large some of these, um, these companies have grown, you know, and I yeah. knew, you know, we, Marcel, you and I both sold to companies when they were tiny, when they were in, you know, 5,000 square foot shops and they had, you know, a dozen moving lights was their big lease for the year. I remember when Mike Cannon opened four wall. Yeah. I, yeah. I visited him, I don't know, three months, four months into uh, into his business. It was tiny. It was brand new. And, and uh, you just knew he was going to succeed because Mike Cannon's a great guy. He's a smart guy and he's got great uh, business philosophy that comes down from his father and uh, from his education at Bash. And, and uh, so, 
Yeah, I mean, the Mac 2000 was a major, major move in the uh, automated lighting business. It really evolved uh, the whole business from the 575 MSR or MSD lamp, so sort of that mid-level output. Uh, in Prior to the Mac 2000, what you were seeing is a lot of rigs had studio colors, studio spots, Mac 500, 600s, but also cyber lights on sort of that, that top rig and um, or for long throw or for the bigger stuff what the mac 2000 did is gave you a fully automated moving head rig without any moving mirrors at all mac 2000 really it didn't kill the studio spot it didn't really the xbot killed itself the mac 2000 didn't kill that but what the mac 2000 did do is it killed the cyberlight and uh I would say the next major innovation from a moving light at high end didn't happen for a very long time until the DL1 came out. Absolutely. Um, I remember that distinctly. And, you know, a little bit of history on the digital moving light, DL1, DL2, DL3. Um, the development of that actually came from a gentleman by the name of Bill Hewlett, Hewlett Packard, who was, uh, who was an engineer at the time with PRG. And he was the person that patented um, DLP uh, chips being an automated light so you could stream video out of them. And I remember going to an LDI and I cannot remember what year for the life of me, but PRG showed a black and white uh, video. It's like a video projector on a yoke, but you could actually, it had interchangeable gobos. Uh, it was kind of interesting. Was so, that the one where they had the sphere in their booth? I, and it was kind of like a planetarium almost. Yes, absolutely. That's right. Yeah, I remember that. So they, they named that light the Medusa. Um, it had a very, very, very high cost of manufacturing. So it never really got off the ground. I think uh, PRG looked at that as being a potential replacement for the icon uh, moving fixture that light and sound design had. And it never really got off the ground. And then, of course, high end. Uh, came into the market on that and kind of legitimized the, the the digital moving light itself with the advent of the DL1, which was essentially just a video projector on a yoke and all the processing on that was external. Um, and then of course, as you, you know, you evolved or as that light evolved into the DL2 and the DL3 and the, the DLV, then they started to put the media servers on board on those things. So it was a standalone light. You could upload content to, um, Kind of an interesting concept. It's something that has it had its moment in the sun in our industry, but it is also very. It's somewhat complex to operate these lights because you wind up with so many control channels on them. You know, sometimes over a hundred control channels to control a light, and then you have you need to hire a video editing guy to load content into the lights to make the shows uh, look good. You know, so a lot of digital scenery stuff got done with that, which was kind of interesting on stages where you would have backdrops that would animate. Uh, I think the DL2 light was the first uh, the first light where you could actually split an image 50-50 between, um, between two of those things. It was sort of like a, a video watch-out system, for lack of a better term, and that saw quite a bit of popularity in uh, churches. I know later in the DL3 that that was kind of a built-in feature where you could uh, take a section of an image and then kind of uh, mosaic uh, the image together. So that it's, uh, they were very yeah, popular. 
You know, my my feeling on the whole digital lighting thing is I think we kind of overshot the market with the technology. So I think certainly somebody need full someone out there wants full video in a moving light. Myself personally, I never really saw a great need for it. But where I saw the technology uh, evolving was really a a smart enough uh, video light where it didn't necessarily do full video, but you could scan images and send them to the light, for example, as digital gobos. Uh, digital gobos, to me, uh, was a much bigger opportunity than moving video projectors. And I think we just, we missed the mark on that one. We kind of overshot the market. The lights were too expensive initially. And it became sort of an elite where you've got a rig with 500 moving lights and four DL1s. Well, uh, you know, that's not exciting. That's right. You know, I, I think I agree with you 100% about the digital gobo thing. Because in my mind, you know, you have a, with the digital moving light, you have a repurposable light. So if the, you know, the Mac 5000 comes out next year, let's say, right, what you could do is you could take the gobo set out of that and the color feature set out of that and, and digitally plug that into the digital light, right? So that the light could, could be continually repurposed via a profile rather well, so let's yeah let's let's create the perfect moving light here right now so really what it is is it's a digital light where you can assign the feature set to it based on what you want it to do today so let's say not just the gobos or the colors but how about all effects as well so we want a framing module we want a uh you know we want digital gobos we want color mixing or we want fixed colors or and you can just mix and match a feature set onto that light every time you use it. That's right. And we want the channel count to be the same too and identical, uh, identically mapped out to what the moving light is that you're, I guess, emulating for lack of a better term. So we should yeah, trademark perfect. this right here, this idea and maybe I think submit we it for I think we just did. I think <laughs> we just go. did by putting it out there on a uh, on a podcast. We've we've uh, we've verbally trademarked it. So we have prior art on everybody. There you so go. There you go. We'll call yeah, it. and the other thing I think that that digital lighting really did was change change the console market forever as well. So as these lights, and I think Xbot even before digital lights, I think Xbot was like twenty one or twenty two channels, and the whole world kind of went, oh my god, you know, because at the time we were talking about lighting consoles that had one universe, five hundred and twelve channels. And so when you had a moving light that was taking 21, 25 channels, it was eating them up fast. And um, so, you know, that became a real issue. And then you ended up with things like the Hog 2 that had multiple universes. And now you get into, you know, the Grand MA 2, 3, whatever, uh, where it's pretty limitless on the number of channels that you can put out. Yeah, Absolutely. And I guess we should, we have to put a footnote in here for the VL3000 and the 3500, which was kind of the next evolution beyond the Mac 2000, right? Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, so... so sure. I, I don't know an awful lot about them, except that we've sold thousands of them. <laughs> I know for, for a very long time, a couple of years, the VL3000 was by far the most highly used and sought after. It was probably the next big moving head after the Mac 2000 was the VL3000. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we couldn't get enough of them and even just things like currency shifts. So if there was a fluctuation in currencies, 
we were going nuts selling them from Europe to the United States or from the United States to Europe, depending on the currency fluctuations. And, uh, you know, we could have had as many, we could have had an endless supply of VL3000s and never run out of opportunities to sell them. It was such a hot light. It was a very refined light. It was, um, for those of you out there this, that use the, the Mac Vipers today, so that was kind of like an early model Mac Viper, for lack of a better term, great beam quality, good feature set, high reliability, things like that. And obviously the VL3500 after that, um, which are still being used today in the industry, right? So that's that's yeah. probably now a six or seven year old light, but uh, you know, again, a pretty robust light, great imaging, things like that, right? Yeah. Well, and then I think probably the next big thing that happened in moving lights, and and uh, you know, we've talked about a lot of things, starting with you know rubber bands on a mirror in front of a base cabinet, but the next major thing that happened was sort of refining the optics to take advantage of very small lamps and put out huge output. And I think you know the fixture I'm talking about. Absolutely, I sure do, right? The Sharpie. So, yeah, uh, yeah kind of an interesting light for sure. Um, and it's it was sort of a right-hand turn for the automated lighting business for the longest time. You know, you had full feature set lights that you used for five or six or seven years. And the Sharpie is a beam effect. We've all used them. There are many copies, many iterations of Sharpies, uh, you know, from Alation, from Chauvet, and then of course there's a giant Chinese influx of those things also. But it was also the first, uh, for lack of a better term, it was a purpose-built effect light. And that was a kind of an interesting direction that the automated lighting business took in that you know, it did one thing, it was a beam, it was a great effect, it was a bright spot of light, but that's all it really kind of did, it changed colors and things like that. But well, and I'll tell you, what I was told is, is that, um, and this was by a very major designer, told me that the, the reason that Sharpies existed was because of video. And video kind of did away with a lot of the profile fixtures, hard edge fixtures. So you had wash lights and video. And they were looking for this air effect that you couldn't get from wash lights or video. And so that's where the beam effects came in. Uh, it replaced the ACL and it just really complemented video and wash lights. And um, again, you know, kind of in a sense did away with the need for, for profiles. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, the biggest Sharpie display that I've ever seen was uh, PRG put like 400 or 500 of those fixtures on one of the Super Bowl halftimes. And that was kind of interesting that they strung them around uh, between level one and level two of the stadium. That, that was the year I think that the Ravens played the um, the New Orleans Saints when the power went out. It was exactly it. They knocked out the power with the Sharpies. But uh, that was an interesting um that was an interesting well, display. What's, of those what's more interesting is what is that 170 watt lamp, and yes. uh, and you know I mean that thing at the top of a stadium had no problem whatsoever. So you know if you would have looked at that 15 years ago and said what lamp do you think is in this thing, people would say I don't know 2,000 watts. But it was such an advancement in in very simple optics in a small fixture like that. Uh, that's the breakthrough there. It's not. 
the fact that you had, you know, a beam effect. It's the fact that you got that beam effect at very long distances out of a 170 watt lamp. That was exciting. It was pretty mind blowing, which started, you know, it's kind of funny. The Sharpie lamp started that whole generation of, you know, platinum based lamps, the, the platinum five R lamps, things like that, that, uh, you know, it's exactly what you said, you know, 230 watt lamps, lower wattage lamps, great output, small, uh, small arc. So it collects a lot of light in the, you know, in the uh, optical path. So you get some pretty big, you know, output. And of course, of course, you know, then at that time also you had the advent of the led light engine. Uh, Boom. Boom. There it was. So it wasn't quite there yet when the Sharpie was introduced, but a lot of people saw a lot of opportunity in, um, in that type of a light engine. So it developed an output, you know, very, very, very fast. Right. Yeah. But, uh, well, and, and there were really two sides of the coin on that one. So you had manufacturers like, uh, high end and, and others who were creating, uh, a, a white led engine that still used conventional, uh, automated lighting parts, meaning color mixing and, and et cetera. And then on the other side of the coin, you had um, LEDs as an effect by themselves in like the Aura and the BI and a lot of these fixtures where you are actually looking at red, green and blue LEDs or looking at these big lenses that are separated like in the BI and then doing different effects by moving those lenses in or out or or whatever you're doing with them. So really two totally different uh, genres of new technology coming out one as an engine and one as i guess an effect yeah absolutely um no it's just a a big change i think really this this is another you know watershed moment for the for the production industry and you know the advent of the led um engine you know cuts a lot of heat out of the uh the fixtures themselves you know so you know what made high-end and martin and verilite so popular in the industry and what kind of limited how many, you know, what type of players came into the market. And I guess I should also give a shout out to Comar on this too, because they were a player in it, but you know, they built the highest quality ovens out there. So, you know, these things would heat up to some pretty incredible temperatures on the inside and just the engineering that it took to keep all the parts cool to prevent all of the electronics and the motors and things like that from failing, uh, was pretty amazing and of course with the with the led light engine uh the lamp efficacy you know the lumens per watt on leds are higher now than discharge so you're able to get more light output out of less wattage and then thus less heat so you know cooling issues have kind of changed in the automated lights you got to cool the led engine now so it doesn't fail prematurely or fade out prematurely but you're not spending as much time cooling motors and optics and buckling gobos and all kinds of stuff like that so that kind of pretty much takes us up to where you know we are today when you go to a trade show and you see that every automated light now virtually minus a few the you know the platinum uh light based fixtures really all have led light engines in them you know so now and and so i think two interesting things here one is that uh, what happens when all of these end user clients find out that when their light engine dies, uh, <laughs> their light is done? You know, you can't just go out and buy another MSR 1200 lamp or whatever. And um, 
I don't know that a lot of manufacturers have thought a lot about that. They were in such a rush to get LEDs into their fixtures that they never really thought about what's the next step. You know, how do we upgrade these fixtures? In my opinion, every LED fixture should have upgradable LED engines in it. And there should be an upgrade path that says, you know, once a year, once every two years, once every whatever. And even if it's at a cost, I, I think if you tell the customer that up front and you give them a plan, I think it's a much better uh, angle than what we're seeing today. Because what we're seeing today, which is part two of my, my sort of final point here, is that LEDs are coming out. And, and uh, let's pick on the BI for a moment. I remember seeing the BI at LDI. I remember every designer telling me that is going on my next show. And what that means when a designer says that is that some poor sap who owns a lighting company somewhere has to buy 200 of those things and put them out on one set of shows. Maybe it's six months, maybe it's 12 months if you're real lucky. And chances are, because the rental rates right now on moving lights are so low and so competitive, chances are you're not going to recoup more than 30%, 40% of your money. Well, the problem is because LEDs as an engine are evolving so quickly and the efficacy is going up much higher and the packages are getting better and better from Cree and other companies, that the problem is, you know, the, the evolution is happening much more quickly. And remember when I mentioned earlier that there was no real innovation between the Mac 2000 and the VL 3000. And those lights probably came out, and I don't know exactly, so I'm going to guess, but probably six, seven years apart. And there was really nothing in the automated lighting world that I can recall that was incredible that happened between those two lights. Whereas in LED, you can't even wait till the next trade show. There's 10 things that have happened. And so that BI was really hot for one touring season. And then it was dead. It was forgotten. I, I don't know of anyone who's got BIs in their rental stock right now. And I'm sure a lot of major companies do, but I don't hear about them. Uh, on the used market, uh, we've seen prices plummet on them. And, you know, meanwhile, the, the real workhorse types of fixtures like Mac Auras have had some staying power. But it's, it's sort of a one in a hundred scenario where a hundred of these LED-based moving lights come out one of them has staying power. The other 99 are going to end up 50%, 40% of their value in a year. And so you better find a way to recoup that value quickly in the rental market. So it all circles back around to as an industry, and especially when it comes to touring and things where you want all the, the best, greatest, flashiest, newest stuff, we have to be a little bit more responsible and realize that if I want a BI, I'm going to have to pay a premium price to get it. Otherwise, maybe I should pick something that's already on their shelves. And that's where I think it has to come around to. And there's a fine balance between being able to feed these companies so that they continue innovating. Because I'm not putting down Claypacky for coming out with the BI. I think it was a really cool fixture and did a really cool thing at a time when nothing else did. But it's a very different time now. Like if you look around uh, in the technology world, whether it's cell phones or, or just little gadgets and things, it, patents don't matter anymore because it's moving so damn fast. You don't have time to collect on a patent anymore. So you can patent the heck out of something. It doesn't matter. The, the version 2, version 3, the next iteration of that is going to happen so quickly that it doesn't matter. 
So from a rental company standpoint, you need to be able to time these things, something we discussed earlier, so that you're not losing your ass on every moving light that you buy these days. Absolutely. I agree that our, you know, certainly the automated lighting business with the amount of product that's being dumped into it right now has become a bit watered down, which is, you know, which is ultimately why video is getting so big, because if you're sitting there as a business owner going, wow, I can't recoup my money, as you mentioned, on, on these automated lights, I can certainly do it on video. So it's definitely caused uh, somewhat of an industry shift with rental production companies, rental stagers, right? That definitely, definitely are, you know, hey, I can get revenue for these things, uh, the, the LED video walls. Well, at, at least in video tiles, there really are only two areas of innovation. And, you know, that's the pitch, which we are going to hit a, a, a minimum pitch, you know, at around one mil or whatever. It's not going to go any closer. Um, but the pitch and, and the nits, the brightness. And, you know, other than that, I mean, yeah, they're coming out with cooler packaging, more interesting ways to put the screens together or to carry them or whatever. But or they're getting lighter or smaller or thinner. But it's not something where you have to trash a whole, you know, inventory of hundreds of video panels because there's a new one that's one pound lighter. That's right. And a lot of these panels now, these systems are upgradable. But I guess that's a topic for sort of another day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think we hit the nail on the head when we talked about this digital moving light where you can package in different modules or features and create a different uh, set of features based on what the designer wants for a particular show. So in other words, you know, you've got the Model X moving light and what do you want, sir? What would you like in it for this tour? And here's what it's going to cost you with that feature set. And, um, you know, it's more of a software thing, less of a hardware thing. And I, I think from a success and profitability standpoint, it allows rental companies to, you know, to, to coexist and to collaborate a little bit more so that if, you know, instead of every company having a thousand moving lights between the companies, they can have 2000 moving lights between a bunch of companies and just move them around as needed in cross rentals and things like that. So I know that perfect world doesn't exist. But I think that we're going to have to find our way closer to that because otherwise, you know, the industry as a whole, the fact that all of the large companies are owned by private equity, uh, to me, is not a good sign of health in this industry. And um, so I think there needs to be some change. And when it comes to the moving light manufacturers, hopefully they'll find their way back to some level of responsibility on on the profits driven from renting these moving lights out and that means slowing down innovation a little bit on you know having a model x.1 x.2 x.3 three times in one year where you're supposed to trash your entire inventory and go get the next model that just doesn't work anymore sure doesn't for sure uh, this is just a really interesting and very broad topic, as you can hear. Um, I think we've cut out massive chunks of what we could be talking about here just to try and keep it at an hour, but uh, hopefully you've enjoyed it. Uh, anything else from you, Henry? No, not really. I look forward to certainly having our discussion on the business uh, side of things on how to get in and out of your inventory in the near future. I'd like to bring on some guest hosts for that, so that would be uh, great for the near future. Cool. So we'll be announcing some guests soon. And thank you all for joining us today for this uh, episode of Geezers of Gear, where we talked about the evolution of 
automated lighting and uh, definitely a lively little discussion. So thanks a lot. Hope you all have a great week, great weekend. It's Friday. And uh, we will be back with you with episode three very soon. Take care. Stay warm, all. Sweet, sweet child